everyone. This is Bird's Eye Astrology Podcast. This is episode two. We are recording at 7.38 p.m. in New York City, New York. Hi, I'm Arthur. I'm Margaret. Hi, I'm Nate. So today we're going to talk, be talking about the asteroid goddesses. The uh, So we all really, all, the three of us all really like to use the asteroid goddesses in our astrology and while different asteroids get called part of the asteroid goddesses today we're just going to be focusing on um the big four uh Pallas Athene, Vesta, Ceres, and Juno. So Nate do you want to start by talking a little bit about the history? Sure so um something really interesting is that the the, with the asteroid goddesses, their discovery um, all happened around the same, within the same period of um, a decade. And, um, well, really, so the first observations of the asteroid goddesses happened in the late 1770s, early 1780s. And um, they weren't really named, they weren't really given their definitive names or um, kind of declared as such until the early 1800s. But what's interesting about this chunk of time between the late 1770s to early 1800s is that it's a time of a lot of revolutions. As we know, as many of our listeners might already be able to guess, that was the time of the American Revolution, also a period of the French Revolution, um, where all these right. kind of new innovative ideas were going on around what is what what makes a good society or experiments happening, whether those experiments were successes or failures is kind of a, a another debate to be had. But um, but the discovery of the asteroids of these four major asteroids um, involved also a kind of surge of a revolutionary energy which is also in keeping, it's going to be interesting thing about that is it's in keeping with the mythology of the asteroid goddesses to begin with, because the whole basis of the Olympians taking their form and taking their shape and their form of rulership was how the Olympians overthrew the Titans. Right. Um, Excellent. Yeah. So how tyranny is, how, how tyranny becomes recognized. Um, Kronos devouring his children because he was afraid that one of his children would become, would, would, be, would overthrow him <laughs> and become right. heir to the throne. And then interestingly, it was, it was Rhea, Cronus, or Rhea, Cronus's wife, who was really, was really angry, was really pissed off about this and decided to kind of sneakily hide Zeus away so that Zeus was, you know, raised by this goat. Uh, when Kronos didn't really notice, um, and the so right there we already have Rhea uh, kind of all conspiring for this revolution to happen against the tyrannical Kronos. So already there's a goddess who is the one who's conspiring the revolution to begin with. Um, yeah, absolutely. I love the revolutionary aspect of the goddesses, and part of and I really thinks. Part of why I think it's so important to use the asteroid goddesses in astrology, at least the big four, is because they bring forth uh, a feminine archetype, which are 
yes. more contemporary, more modern, and less, um, more, I read for a lot of queer and feminist clients, and yeah. for those clients, the asteroid goddesses are really important, because yeah. they bring in aspects of the feminine that you don't see with the seven traditional planets. Right. Mm-hmm. The main feminine planets are the moon, mother, and Venus, lover. Yeah. Uh, which, and women, and the feminine is more than that. Right, exactly. There's also, there's also an argument to be made that I've heard a few, in a few places that a lot of traditional texts associate, consider Saturn to be a, fe- uh, a female planet, um, <laughs> which complicates the picture a bit and evens the gender balance out, completely evens the gender balance out, actually the seven traditional planets but i still think it's really important to consider especially from a feminist standpoint what the asteroid goddesses have have to offer right yeah um there is some controversy over how to use them different people use different orbs in terms of aspects some people only use tight conjunctions because they don't give off light they're you know you know they're circling modifiers they're big modifiers and i will say i find they're at their most potent when they're tightly conjunct something like an angle or um a personal planet but i find them to be work in charts even when they're not necessarily conjunct something that tightly um some of the more hellenistic astrologers would have my head for that because it's all about What's giving off light with that? Um, but they're important. But general, but you might be safer using tight orbs. I don't know. What do you think, Margaret? Um, I've read a lot, um, especially with work with um, draconic charts, which is the chart of the soul, which is a totally different episode. Um, but working with asteroids in. Um, draconic charts compared to um, tropical charts you have to have like a conjunction of a two degree orb and that's or an opposition so i've used both the conjunction and the opposition but i've used the a tighter the orb the better but i would still give it a little bit of lenience i'd say probably maybe three or four even five it's a stretch but degrees but i wouldn't go any farther than that Mark Jones has got the 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 orb the three and a half degree orb in my head as a thing to use because he uses that with his planetary nodes work, which is oh amazing. Um, right. Yeah. And, uh, we should, dude, we should try and get Mark Jones on to talk about planetary nodes. Oh, that'd be amazing. That'd be great. <laughs> um, yeah, I notice a lot in Sinistry the the tight conjunction between. To between an, e- either an asteroid or a personal planet or an asteroid and another asteroid. It oh, yeah. Almost eight times out of ten. It's, oh, that's interesting. Some sort of, it, yeah, there's some sort of asteroid conjunction going on. And in the natal chart, like, um, for example, if someone has an asteroid conjunct like Venus, you know, those two are hand in hand, like it modifies the natal Venus. So then if that person has Venus, in any aspect to any other planet in a synastry to anyone else, it's going to amplify the Venus, which then affects the aspect, regardless of the orb of the, like the Venus Saturn aspect is an eight, 10 degree orb. 
but it's still being affected by the uh, the asteroid because it's sitting on the needle Venus yeah. of the purse. If I make yeah, exactly. So much but, <laughs> of what we look at with astrology is what's up with this thing. Right. And if what's, what's up it doing? with what you, what you up to, yo? Um, <laughs> what's up with the planet is it's conjunct an asteroid, then that's part of that planet's story, like you said. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, why don't we talk a little bit about each of these asteroids in turn? Yeah. 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 That sounds so good. I want to start with my, well, I don't know. I'm getting, we might not be doing these in a, in a normal order, but I want to start with my favorite, which is Vesta. Yes. I am a huge fan of Vesta. Arthur um, the Vesta person. I love, I love Vesta as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So Vesta was uh, actually. Do you want to talk about the mythology of Vesta and the Vestal Virgins, Nate? Sure. Um, so Vesta is actually. Uh, I mean, she's most commonly known, or Hestia is most commonly known as the virgin goddess of the heart and the home. Um, now, the word virgin is a little bit a little bit loaded, and we can unpack that. <laughs> <laughs> what that exactly means as we go on because it's, it's probably not what we think it means in a lot well, of ways. I mean, um, yeah, you go, go for it. Go yeah, for it. no, yeah. so yeah, the short virgin version, <laughs> the short, <laughs> <laughs> relaying that one in the short version of virgin, um, <laughs> is that basically all it meant originally was a woman who was not reliant on a man to make her existence. Yeah, she owned her own life. Yeah. Exactly. Independent, autonomous. Yeah. Exactly. Which I think is... spiritual. Yeah. Um, And I think that's important for understanding both Vesta and for understanding the archetype of Virgo as a sign. Indeed. Yeah. Yeah. Now Vesta was also um, Hest or Hestia was the, the actually the first Olympian because she was the eldest daughter of Kronos, so that means she was the firstborn, um, and she was also with with the story of so as we were kind of hinting at before in the episode when Kronos was so felt so threatened by the notion of one of his children taking over the throne, he started swallowing his children, like really disgusting cannibal style. And, uh, and, and Vesta being the firstborn was the first swallowed. Um, and she was also after, after the Titan Metis, which is thought, um, gave Kronos this wine, mustard, strange potion combination that made him vomit up all of the kids. Uh, Vesta was the last, the, <laughs> forget what the wording is, the last dislodged or something like that. So, so she, <laughs> she first born, first swallowed, and last disgorged. <laughs> <laughs> so so she's kind of like, you know, she's been around, the, in a way there's this sense that among the Olympians, around these kind of hotshot gods that really love to strut their stuff, Vesta is exceptional. She's really an exception in that she's been around the longest. She has a sense of real staying power um, and and this this loyalty to what matters or to what really burns what what is essential to burn in order for 
for anything else in life to appear, what really needs to be burning. Um, in order for all the other gods to do their stuff, she's got a lot of staying power. Right, exactly. Um, Vesta or Hestia has to do with the hearth and home. Yeah. Um, and when I think of the hearth and home, you know, we often think of the moon as home. But Vesta often, in my, in my experience, has to do with what makes a house a home that quality that makes it feel like this is a place worth living. Like this is a place where you could make a real home, that quality of heart. Um, now Vesta also had pre had priestesses and these priestesses would tend a sacred fire. And so you often find that Vesta shows in a chart, what is the sacred fire that you tend? What yeah. is the sacred work that's just a very, you know, day-to-day Virgo style of work um, where it's not like your grand career, but like it's really important that you just keep it as a daily practice. Mm-hmm. Um, and these priestesses were virgins and the mythology is complicated and there's different scholars saying different things. Some are using the virgin in the sense of not having sex, and some are using it in a much more independent sense. But you see that throughout, and it also, these, these priestesses, what went on with the temple changed over the course of history. And mm-hmm. at first, it was sacred prostitution. Um, not prostitution in the sense we often think of it today, but very much a, sacri- a sexual sacrament. Mm-hmm. I see Vesta often very strong in the chart of uh, women or femmes who do sex work, particularly if they do it in a more sacred or spiritual way, uh, although not always. And not necessarily sex work in the traditional sense, but sexuality-related work. Uh, Riley Reed, for example, a, a pornographic actress, has Vesta in Cancer exactly conjunct her south node. Oh, wow. Um, and an acquaintance of mine who did her uh, master's thesis on sacred prostitution has Vesta exactly conjunct her descendant. Mm. Okay. Um, and, but I also find that it tends to symbolize. And, and but it also, and be, I don't. It's not just about the sex and the sex work. I mean, that's kind of my field is sexuality, so that's part of what I focus on. Mm-hmm. Um, it does have to do with sexuality in the sense of owning, uh, sort of a feminine owning your own sexuality. Whether that can be uh, in the more traditional virgin sense of just maintaining of of just how you maintain sexual boundaries, but also almost like similar to Venus, that feminine sexuality, but instead of receptive, it's projective. It goes out and gets what it wants. Okay. Um, but it also, I also find it has to do with sort of like how the feminine is idealized. Like yeah. what is like one of the most, uh, one of the most worrisome aspects I will see in an opposite sex pairs uh, synastry is when the man's Vesta is conjunct the woman's moon or Venus mm. because then he sort of mistakes that woman for his internal ideals of how he imagines women should be. Um, yeah. I, uh, 
newer couple for that uh they've been broken up for a while but uh the 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 feminine was a friend of mine and asked me to take a look at their synastry i'm like i don't see anything keeping you together except this vesta moon conjunction his vesta on her moon and Uh she was like oh yeah he really does project all of these ideals on and i've certainly encountered it from the other end which i won't go into here Um, (laughs) Yeah, I mean, a lot of these, a lot of the old texts say things like Vesta is immune to the to the temptations of Venus, or that she's really um, not involved with she's really not involved with the activities of Venus or of Aphrodite, which is interesting because I, I think that simplistically we might go to thinking oh that means she's not involved with love and sex but that's not really what that means it's not no <laughs> it's, it's it, to do with and I, and I haven't quite worked it out what it what 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 that actually means but there's something to do with the well it's love and between yeah it's love and sex as independence rather than connection right right it's yeah. love it's sex it's love and sex as i am holy myself and i'm choosing yeah to interact with you from that place. Whereas yeah. Venus wants to merge. Yep. Right. Right. It's the autonomy of, it's, it's the autonomy of love and sex. Yeah. The autonomy of love and sex and the autonomy of, of the feminine. Well, yeah. I have um, in front of me as my, more of my areas, relationship stuff. Yeah. Um, I have in front of me five couples, which for the sake of this will be couple one, two, three, four, five. Um, which are for the purposes of stating all heterosexual male female relationships. Right. I don't have a lot to add from um, any other perspective because I those are my those are my clients. Um, but I have them in front of me, and I'm seeing a lot of both in the composite and synastry charts Vesta South Node and Vesta mm. Venus, which I find to be. Very interesting. <laughs> that is, that um, is interesting, yeah. I think, I mean, and this might be skewing off a little bit into South Node talk, but, um, like, the South Node is, you know, where we came from. And to, right. to dilute it significantly, <laughs> you know. Um, but perhaps this, this feeling, you know, it's the hearth and the home. So you could feel yeah. like this was a home from from your past that you may have touched before or feels cozy and familiar to you. Exactly. Um, you know, I'm not saying that's a make it or break it thing. Like, Oh, this person feels warm and fuzzy, but all of our other aspects are terrible. Like that's not a glue, but it's kind of like a fuzzy, <laughs> you know, it's like a warm, fuzzy bathrobe. Yeah. It, it can absolutely have that a lot. Fuzzy feeling. <laughs> I'm, I'm recalling uh, last, like end of last November or end of November, early December, 2018, there was a lot of sort of, um, fallout of the Venus retrograde where people were really working out they were really going into the deep dark aspects of relationship and questions about merging versus autonomy and freedom or how merging how merging intersects with autonomy and freedom and integrate and there was a whole period where Vesta was swearing Venus and and those tensions were really amplified it was around the Sagittarius new moon Um, about yeah yeah, about three years ago february of three yeah about january february uh 2016 um mars was moving very very slowly 
in Scorpio, through Scorpio, and Vesta was moving very, very slowly through Aries at the same time. And there was an extended period where they were both in these mar- martial signs yeah. uh, in a tight, uh, in conjunct, like weeks. Um, <laughs> all around me, I saw all this conflict and anger between between the feminine and the masculine. Mm. Um, and like I was talking to some of my friends about it and they were saying it wasn't just happening with with the gender stuff but also with other identity axes as well. Yeah. Um, but what I mostly saw with the gender stuff was of the strong, independent, fiery feminine Vesta in Aries squaring off against the, you know, aggressive martial masculine with Mars and Scorpio and just you know, that friction that 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 yeah. of the yeah. uh, in conjunct. Right. Yeah. Uh, friction. Yeah. <laughs> we use sound effects on this podcast. Yeah, right. <laughs> because that's what all these things they they affect our guts yeah 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 Yeah, and and we don't have a and i don't have a soundboard in front of me (laughs) right (laughs) we gotta do it ourselves you know the homegrown i don't know i might have have a whole studio soon with uh through my school but we'll see if that works out yeah vesta was discovered in 1807 and um, okay. and for our listeners, I mean, uh, um, without getting too much into outer planets and things like that, I think it's really interesting to look at cycles of time, long cycles of time in relation right. to the discoveries of these asteroids. And so, for example, um, looking at, uh, so for instance, Neptune, Neptune takes approximately... 164 to 165 years to make a full um, to, to go all the way around the zodiac. So for so 164 to 165 years after Vesta was discovered, it was around 1972. And um, just looking at the historical events for 1972, there was a lot. There were a lot of things going on around kind of getting to the heart of the matter or getting to the heart of what really matters and what really reflects um, human self-sovereignty in a more empowered way, in a more sort of compassionate way. Um, It was a little bit less uh, kind of hawkish in terms of being warlike in in a (laughs) contradistinction to what we might be seeing from some of the other goddesses. Um, there There were things like peace negotiations, limiting biological warfare, marches for peace um, and also the first spacecraft was launched uh, with the intent of traveling the asteroid belt in Jupiter which it it was successful Um, Mm -hmm. that was for the Neptune return of the discovery of Vesta in 1972 so yeah um, cool yeah Vesta has so much to do with that fire burning in the heart of what you really care about and what's really important to you and what's so important to you that you're going to get up and do it every day Yes. And how, how quickly does Vesta move through a sign, just for listener reference? Vesta takes about two months, to, uh, two, and, two and a half months to go through a sign. Okay. Nice. 
Yeah, yeah. and usually retrogrades about once a year. Mm -hmm. Okay. The, what you just said about, um, you said that Vesta reflects really what matters, what, what really matters above all else and what you will constantly what matters go back to. to. Not, what matters not in a grand universal sense, but in a much more yeah. personal. Personal, yeah. And that makes it, that, I feel like that gives meaning to um, Socrates actually is quoted as saying it, that it would be necessary to sacrifice the Hestia above all of the other gods or before all of the other gods because Hestia comes is what comes first. So it's like if you take that in a personal sense, it's what comes first to you. Got yeah. It. All right. So let's talk about Juno. Yeah. Do you want to go into the uh, mythology again, Nate? Sure. So Juno, also known as Hera, um, is most popularly known as the goddess of marriage, the Olympian queen of the gods, um, goddess of women and of the sky. Um, she was so she was married to Zeus, but she was also Zeus's sister. And so she was a sister wife, and uh, and um, and like her siblings, she was also swallowed by Kronos. So again, she's part of this revolution. She's part of this overthrowing what had become the tyrant of this Kronos. Um, and she, so and, and Zeus. There, there's a famous story about Zeus seducing her by. Um, turning himself into a cuckoo bird or something like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And uh, every, every year, again, this question of virginity comes up. She, she goes to a special place to bathe herself um, and renew her virginity, um, which, which, again, I think we can take in all of these different directions of virginity that we're discussing. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Juno is the goddess of marriage, but she's also in a very difficult marriage. In a very difficult marriage. Her husband, is all, her husband is Zeus, who's always, you know, fucking anybody who comes within 10 feet of him. Right. Um, <laughs> and if there's no one within 10 feet of him, he's going to turn into a badger or whatever and go find something to fuck. Well, it's almost like it's the dutiful, the dutiful marriage above all else, you know, like we are together, he's being a real scum, you know, but like we're married though. And yeah. it brings that up too. That's like one a way glue. That's one way it can manifest. I find it often manifests in a sense that Juno tends to show the ways that relationships are hard. The yeah. ways that relationships are processes that require work and don't necessarily turn out magically overnight. Um, yeah, the long game. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. The long game, exactly. And that's and how that's a challenge. Uh, Venus is the principle of connection in a lot of ways. But Juno often shows, what are you like in a serious long-term partnership? Not even necessarily a marriage. Like I know, um, I know someone who has Juno at a very difficult degree of Aquarius in the seventh house, and all of her serious long-term partnerships are close friendships with gay men. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, yeah. So yeah, that's how Juno manifests for her. One thing I've found is interesting, and this is I've I've seen this in a few charts. 
Um, Juno, particularly if it's in a Mars ruled sign like Aries or Scorpio, also represents the feminine that is sick and tired of everyone's shit. Particularly <laughs> the feminine that is sick and tired of the masculine shit or men's shit, more je- more specifically. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you often find uh, Juno in like Juno in uh, Aries or Scorpio. Oh, I'm trying to think of any prominent examples and none I can actually name right now. Uh, when there's that sort of, I'm not going to take it anymore. Kind of. Yeah. Thing. Not going to take it. Yeah. We're not going to take it. <laughs> Speaking of Juno and Aries, um, there is an aspect of Juno that has to do with heads of state. Yes. Juno often shows up prominent in the chart of popes. And one of and my favorite example for this, Obama had Juno at zero Aries, mm. representing a whole new phase, a whole new beginning for the presidency. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. And I, I liked what you were saying, too, about partnership, Juno reflecting partnership. We think of marriage in this kind of very as a kind of very narrow social construction, but not only the, the literal marriage contract, but long-term partnerships overall. I've seen in synastry of clients um, conjunctions, conjunctions of Juno to the moon. Um, yeah, between the two I have. People. Yeah, yeah, and often, um. or, or transits of Juno or placements of Juno that reflect a person wrestling with the decision of whether to stay or leave a particular sometimes one person sometimes a relationship with one person and sometimes it's not a romantic relationship but a close work relationship or or a friendship that has you know kind of turned sour or something like that and Mm -hmm. and the and the juno placement will bring into relief something about well is this worth it is this worth staying put is it worth working on or do i do I go? Is it demanding a loyalty from me that is not warranted anymore, that I've outgrown or, you know, that I just can't be in anymore? Yeah, well, that's yeah. Perfect. That's what I was saying about the mythology of Juno mm-hmm. having to do with wrestling with being in a difficult partnership. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I have um, in my charts in front of me, I, couple one has been together for 10, 15 years. Um, they have Juno conjunct the vertex in, which is conjunct the descendant in their composite. Um, Juno conjunct the Venus Pluto conjunction in the synastry. <laughs> um, yeah, they've, they've been together for a long time. Couple two has Juno conjunct moon Uranus Neptune conjunction in composite. Um, yeah, which, yeah, <laughs> yeah right. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's pretty intense. Me personally and my partner have Juno conjunct our composite ascendant down to like half a degree. Um, and he likes to tell me that the first day he saw me, he knew he wanted to marry me and he didn't know why. Um, wow. wow. Really sweet. I love it. Oh, okay. oh, <laughs> um, I love couple four by, you know, and I, I wanted to bring this up because in their composite, um, Juno is just hanging out by herself in sixth house, um, Virgo, just aspecting nothing, just hanging out. Um, and in their synastry, the female has 
Juno conjunct her vertex is conjunct his sun and his Juno is conjunct her south node. Um, and they are not, they are no longer together. They were together though for eight years. They were never, you know, legally married, but right. they were together and it turned sour. I mean, other aspects obviously applied, but it's interesting to see that even if it's a double aspect and it's really tight orb. Well, the composite Juno's hanging out there in the sixth house all by her lonesome. Exactly. Sixth house ain't ain't the best place for any planet. Right. It's not the most romantic house in planet Earth. (laughs) (laughs) So what do you Um, think Juno has to teach us in terms of the, when when the going gets rough? That's a really good question. I mean, in couple four's case, it just and because they broke up and got back together three or four times okay. over the course, and finally, finally decided that it was enough. And if one of them hadn't have moved on, they'd probably still be doing this. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm saying that's completely based on Juno because that's not fair. Um, but <laughs> I'm sure Juno played a factor in it. Like, we have this thing. It's shared. It's been rotting out from under us for seven of the eight years we've been together, but we keep trying, and we keep coming back. And, like, look at Juno and, and Zeus. You know what I mean? He's going doing whatever he wants, and she's still there, and she's still trying. Trying what is the question? You know, is she trying to have this blossoming romantic relationship with him, or is she trying to just maintain this long game situation for her own benefit i mean what what was she trying to accomplish we we can't say but we can speculate well i think part of what she was trying to accomplish is they're a king and queen of the gods right yeah you know partnership is not just about do we like each other relationships Mm -hmm. are not just about are you good at cuddling and sex right relationships or or even like laughing at each other's jokes partnership real long lasting partnership is about taking things seriously Mm -hmm. putting the work in it is hard it takes effort and that is there's a very saturnian aspect to it and that is what it it takes a lot of hard work to create a partnership that lasts and it's because you've got something more valuable than the woo-fun romance. Yeah. Like right. being king and queen of the gods together. A business that you've built, or a home you have, or kids, or a life. And mm-hmm. Juno teaches us how to ask the hard questions of ourselves, of our partners, of our relationship. Is this worth it? Is the work that I'm putting in giving me something that that is worth it? Giving me something that makes all of this effort meaningful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Juno has us ask hard questions about our relationships in general. And through these hard questions, the relationship is strengthened or judged or shown what it is worth or what it is not worth yeah yeah absolutely yeah. i've always i've always seen it as a 
as a Saturnian shade and has a Saturnian hue to it. You yeah. know, anything long-term or stable or nitty-gritty day-to-day, like, if you're sick, is this person going to be there for you anyway? You know, if it's not fun and flirty and, and whatever, like, like you were saying, it's a foundational situation. Yeah, I mean, the even, like, do bringing you soup when you're sick, that, that, <laughs> that can get cutesy. I'm talking about, like, can you do your taxes together without screaming at each other? <laughs> that's so important. <laughs> that's where the rubber meets the road. Yeah, that's so under, underratedly important. <laughs> yeah. Are you okay with whether or not they do the dishes and how? Oh, yeah. Are you really yes. okay? Are you okay? What, yeah, what can you, are, what are you really okay with? Yeah, really, really okay with, and you know what? That the answer, the answer to that is not going to be the same for everyone. Right. Exactly. No, I I feel like a couple of yeah, (laughs) world events that symbolically resonate with what you're talking about is so. so, so every we were talking about. I talked a little bit about Neptune returns <laughs> earlier, and I, I do want to mention something about Uranus returns also because um, okay, they sort of uh, you can use them to observe the historical evolution of how these asteroid goddesses have perhaps functioned. So, the, uh, Uranus takes eighty-four years to go all the way through the zodiac. So, for instance. 84 years, 84, before, years. 84 years before, <laughs> before um, Juno was discovered, uh, the Queen of Sweden was resigning from, from being queen um, because she had wanted to co-rule with her husband in a more or less equal partnership. She wanted also to have a say over the kingdom, but the system, for whatever reason, the the estate refused this, refused this sort of equal partnership and symmetrical partnership. So she stepped down, she resigned. Um, 84 years after uh, Juno was discovered was 1888 when Susan B. Anthony organized, you know, the International Congress for Women's Rights and and leading to this formation of uh, International Council of Women. Um, so we're so we're seeing, you know, these these increments of eighty four years. There's a certain evolution of um, the strength of the feminine, or the, in whether it's in partnership or um, the feminine in its own sovereignty. Again, that word is is occurring. All four of the asteroid goddesses have a very feminist component to them, which is yeah. part of why I think they're so important. But whereas Vesta will sort of just do her own thing and have her independence, Juno will step up to the table and demand to be taken seriously as an equal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I love it. <laughs> That's why I use them. <laughs> I think we covered, so I think we covered Juno pretty well there. Yeah. All right. So what's next? Series? Nate, do you want to talk a little bit about series? (laughs) 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 Sure. Um, Series is, there's there's so much to say about series or Demeter. Um, 
Yeah, another one of the Olympian siblings um, uh, overthrowing Kronos. She was, she's most uh, common, words commonly associated with Ceres or Demeter are agriculture, um, grain, harvest, um, the sort of seasonal changes or presiding over the changing of the seasons that can bring fruit or, or, or you know, those times of year, the time of year when we have to let all of that hibernate and percolate and, and await the rebirth again the following spring. Um, she's uh, also associated with loss and how to undergo loss and grief. Um, loss and renewal as well. Uh, the, I mean, the, the most the most involved story about Ceres or Demeter has to do with her daughter Persephone, who is out in a valley or in a meadow picking flowers one day, and suddenly Hades comes along and takes her to the underworld. Um, and Demeter is really wandering, wandering the universe, I think for nine days and nine nights or something like that. And she, because she can't find her lost daughter and she's so frustrated and so kind of um, demented and has become like grotesque in her grief that she's kind of torching the earth all over the place. And she's wrecking havoc all over the crops that she's actually responsible for. Um, and, and she takes out her grief and her rage over uh, her daughter being gone on, you know, causing things like drought and famine and um, disease, just not, not having good conditions on the earth. Um, and eventually, Hecate, with, through the help of Hecate, uh, Helios, the sun god, and Hermes, the trickster and the messenger of the gods who can go between all of the realms, Demeter eventually ends up knowing where Persephone is. And, um, and I mean, there, there are different interpretations to that, of, of that story and what that really, really means. There's these mystery cults um, grew out of that. But yeah, really it's, it's a question of loss and renewal. And uh, when, when Persephone came back to the upper world again from the underworld, when she was finally able to come back and visit her mother, she came back this supremely empowered goddess and queen. Unlike, you know, when she had been out picking the flowers in the meadow earlier, she was maybe, maybe not so much. She was naive, innocent, young, certainly. And, um, and the question sort of became in a lot of ways, could Demeter love Persephone, her daughter, as much if her daughter didn't need her, if her daughter was, you know, secure in her own womanhood and her own goddesshood, actually. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The idea of need mm -hmm. um, and being yeah. needed. I like um, through, you know, things I've seen and read, you know, the moon is obviously the mother, the mother archetype, um, Cancerian in nature. And I've seen Ceres more also the mother, a different shade of being the mother. Um, 
nurturing and growing like crops. It's a Taurus Scorpio axis type of energy as opposed to, and some Virgo as opposed to strictly Cancerian. Um, but it's a different shade of mother. Like your, your children grow up and no longer need you, you know, and it's this, this need, it's like an aching moon, like cozy emotional need. It's, it's a, a validation of identity type need, um, which I find to be very interesting when, when compared to the moon and the influence of the moon. Yeah, Sirius definitely has some overlap in terms of significations with the moon. I often associate Sirius with, I mean, at its most basic level, you often find Sirius associated with food. Yeah, definitely. Often very literally. <laughs> but yes. more, I mean, she was the goddess of the grain. That's yeah. where we get the word cereal from. Yeah. Mm-hmm. As in breakfast cereal, not as in the podcast, the other podcast, <laughs> um, yeah. which I've only heard the first season of. Anyway, uh, series more generally, though, signifies the needs of the body, food, clothing, shelter, sleep. I've got nurture uh, particularly, pardon? Just how you nurture and care for the body. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. How you nurture and care for the body. Um, And that aspect of series, but that aspect of series where she raised the earth, R-A-Z-E-D, where she basically burned everything to the ground, is an important part of how the asteroid functions in mundane astrology and uh, to a lesser extent in natal. You will often see Ceres, uh, particularly if she's not very well placed, acting in a burn everything to the ground, destroy the world kind of way. There have been... Um, she's active in quite a few natural disaster charts. Um and some more uncomfortable historical events I don't want to quite get into. Mm. But, um, I've also read about her behavior being interpreted as, um, you know, she was wandering around raising, you know, Z uh, things. But I've also heard it interpreted as just, just neglect due to such deep sorrow that she was just wandering around letting everything die and wasn't caring for it as well. So it's almost like, I don't know, like a depressed loss type of thing where you just don't want to care about anything around you and the humans were starving to death and the gods were like, hey, this is kind of your job. You know, like, can you feed help them? (laughs) So I've I've heard it other ways as well, just like... such grief at loss and identity and lack of, you know, just lack of direction so deeply that just everything died <laughs> too. Yeah. So I've, I've heard it that way too. And in a lot of ways, what you're saying there goes with some of the imagery of the actual physicality of, or the geology of the asteroid that supposedly evidence just like the chemistry of, of uh, series um, suggests that it was formed in a, in a cold environment um, or that, the, that this kind of like the um, uh, supposedly there's all of this like surface carbon 
and there's also this uh, huge presence of water and ice and that like icy uh, icy water so i'm just thinking about the water of grief, huh. the water of depression yeah that basically um the geology of series is is defined by rock water interaction that's really Taurus Scorpio, Taurus Scorpio yeah. action. Taurus Scorpio, yeah. yeah. But I, and I know when all of, you know, us millennials were crushed when Pluto was demoted to a dwarf planet by the scientists, <laughs> but this wasn't, wasn't he demoted because of the discovery of Ceres and her size? She was promoted to dwarf planet. Promoted. It's actually better than that. Yeah. Oh, continue. So <laughs> what happened was, and we won't get into her here, what happened was uh, Eris, E-R-I-S, yeah. the goddess yeah. of discord and chaos who, you know, gets the other gods fighting with each other, uh, <laughs> was seen on a telescope to be bigger than Pluto. Okay. And... Um, I, I think Eris might be mad she didn't get invited to this party. Yeah. Um, but I don't know as much about Eris as a, as an astrological object, so I can't speak too much to her. But I do know this one story. So Eris was seen by the IAU, the International Astronomical Union, as being bigger than Pluto. And so they were like, crap, what are we going to do? We can't say this isn't a planet, but Pluto is. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the conference, when <laughs> most of the astronomers had gone home, a, a few astro- a secret group of astronomers snuck to get snuck in and had a vote, and demoted Pluto and promoted Ceres just to make room for Eris, so that both oh. Pluto and Ceres are given the status of dwarf planet. Of course, it was later discovered that Eris is not, in fact, bigger than Pluto. She was just very shiny. So all this sparkly light show on the telescope made it look like she was bigger than Pluto. Causing trouble. (laughs) Exactly. Causing trouble, playing a trick. And not not just playing any old trick, but playing a trick to get theories on equal footing with Pluto. Which is just cosmically delicious. Like yeah. Pluto and Ceres being on the same level when yeah. arguing over Persephone is just gold. <laughs> like it's I just love perfect. it. I love so it. You it couldn't be more on me. the nose. <laughs> Pardon, Nate? You couldn't be more like symbolically on the nose. Exactly. <laughs> I love it. you in the face. Gods are yeah. fighting with each other to this day and Eris is making it happen. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. <laughs> I love it. It's amazing. Yeah. But so, I yeah. also love that about series. Yeah. So that's <laughs> a little bit there. Yeah, that's a little bit about Eris too. Bonus yeah. podcast. Um but series is astronomically speaking classified as a dwarf planet, but within the context of astrology, considered an asteroid. Because of her size, would you say that she might have more of an effect on a chart than, like, Juno or asteroids we've been discussing thus far? Like, where do you see the direction of Ceres' inclusion in? Where I... I don't have a solid answer to that. I don't 
think she's more important than the other goddess asteroids. I feel that's just my gut instinct. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like there's a lot of objects in the asteroid belt. Um, and because, and part of why I say that is just at, the reason these we talk about these four asteroids as the as the goddess asteroids as the big four is because they're the biggest four asteroids compared to all of the other asteroids in the asteroid belt, which is part of why they were the first four asteroids discovered. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So compared to all of the other asteroids, these four are set apart. Right. Yeah. Um, I don't want to put Ceres above the rest of them. That doesn't seem right. Yeah, and I also don't think like size is the most important. Like, I don't think physical size is the most important factor in whether or not an astronomical body has value in astrology. I think it's a factor, but I think the picture is much more complicated than that. And I think we as astrologers are still figuring all of this out. I was thinking from more of an orb standpoint. Like, oh, she's given a wider orb because she's bigger. You know what I mean? I yeah. feel like... I feel like I want to use three and a half degrees for all of them, regardless. Yeah, that's solid. I was just wondering, and speculatively, I was like, oh, yeah, she's kind of big. You know, like, maybe... Yeah, I, mean, I don't know. <laughs> I'm thinking about how powerful dwarfs are, also. I mean, it's not, not, not related to the orb question, but to the... <laughs> Just if you think about dwarfs and stories, more related to the orc question, I suppose. Right. (laughs) (laughs) I had to. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) I was watching some uh, recordings of the live stream of video game speed running recently and orb was a running joke in there and I have no idea why and I don't get it at all but it's stuck in my head now. Another fun fact about Ceres is the year that she was discovered that the asteroid was discovered so was ultraviolet radiation so UV rays were discovered. Oh interesting. Oh. So, which is interesting also, I mean, it, I mean, it's in terms of, you know, sun and the relationship between sun and earth and sun and skin and vitamin D. And, yeah. and if you get too much, if there's too much UV rays in terms of your skin and, and how it's kind of, kind of like the image of Demeter raising the earth. Uh, I was going to say, Ceres is also, she's a cyclical, her character yeah. is cyclical. You know, she gets pulled into Persephone's six months here, six months there Yeah. cycle. And then, you know, the harvest is cyclical and, you know, the winter time is when Persephone is, you know, down with, with Pluto, Hades chilling out. Yeah. It's said to be winter because Demeter or Demeter series is, is bummed. And so. her symbol, <laughs> yeah. and her symbol is literally a sickle. So, uh, yeah. It's really <laughs> cool. <laughs> But I think that is part of the nature of, of, of the goddess who makes the seasons happen. 
is that she is the goddess who makes the bounty of spring and summer happen and also the goddess who makes the cold death of winter happen. Mm-hmm. I also had a thought, and this is a new thought, so I'm just going to throw it out there. But similarly to how, if if you're just looking at the traditional roles, traditional patri- if you're just looking at the traditional patriarchal roles for women of wife and mother, yeah. Juno shows how the role of wife is actually really, really complicated. Mm-hmm. And Ceres shows how the role of mother is really, really complicated. Yeah. Right. And then I, I also read somewhere, yeah, so Juno's the wife and Ceres is the mother and Vesta is the sisters and Pallas, Athene, our last asteroid, is the daughter. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Good. Yeah. So these, all these very, you know, I don't want to say niche, but more specific archetypes than just love or mother. Yeah, you know? exactly. So let's talk about Pallas. That's a great segue into Pallas. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Pallas Athena. Pallas Athena is interesting because she, the asteroid has the name of really two names, Pallas and Athena, and um, the goddess was sometimes called both Pallas and Athena, but it really came from Pallas being another uh, entity who Athena destroyed and ended up, uh, so, so Pallas was, I believe, a giant, and Athena basically uh, defeated him, and fashioned out of his skin uh, a piece of armor for himself, and which is kind of one of the onsets of her being a, war, a goddess of war. Not, mm-hmm. not, not just of war, but also strategy, intelligence. Wis- yeah, wisdom. Yeah, w- wisdom, yeah. I, I remember that's the first thing I learned about her as a kid was goddess of wisdom. But <laughs> like, there's yeah. so much more, again, with the, with the complications of the goddesses, there's so much darkness as well. So, War, um, yeah. the, the defense of, of states or towns. Um, I mean, the darkness that comes with wisdom itself. Like the more you know, the more you know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There are so many stories about Athena that it can be hard to know where to start. But um, just the fact that she was born out of Zeus's head is one of them. That's an uh, important one. Yeah, that that Zeus. One of the versions is that Zeus was uh, was. Um, sleeping with Metis again. Metis thought, and um, she. I think she had predicted that that one of her children would overthrow him. Again, this kind of repeating pattern of the generations overthrowing the prior generation. And so he uh, <laughs> he swallowed her, I believe, and uh, and eventually it just came to be that that the other gods knew that it was time for Athena to be born. And there are different versions as to say which one of these gods made it possible for her to be born. Some versions say it was Prometheus, that Prometheus took an axe and basically struck Zeus's head with an axe and like cracking, splitting Zeus's head open. That's how Athena came out. And that Athena came out fully formed, like, you know, decked out and ready to go. <laughs> yeah, ready to go, goddess garb, and with a shield in front of her. So already there's this kind of like warlike or protective or defensive element 
Um, other, other versions say it was Hephaestus, the, the blacksmith, the craftsman, not Prometheus. But in any case, both, both of those involve kind of innovation and the arts of some form. So, um, so yeah, Pallas Athena. And the fact that she, the, the image of her making, fashioning out of the skin of an enemy, the thing that is going to defend herself. I find that really profound also. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So she is the, she is a war goddess, but yeah. um, not a war goddess like Mars or where he's just going to go, but yeah. more like I'm going to... He's a strategist. He's a strategist. She right. Can, she might not growl at all, in fact. <laughs> yeah. I just take you out you yeah. know, quietly and effectively. Yeah. <laughs> Stony silence kind of thing. Yeah, yeah Pallas tends to show where we apply our strategic creative thinking. Yeah. She tends to show the use of creative intelligence yeah. uh, generally and strategy. Stra- stra- and strategy. Yes. Which is a hard word for me to say sometimes. <laughs> um, because she, part of the, an important part of her myth is being born of, of her father without the mother. And so that intermingling of the masculine and the feminine within the goddess shows up a lot in how the asteroid is, is, uh, Excuse me. In how the asteroid works astrologically, I often find Pallas to be very prominent in the charts in the charts of women who gain power and prestige through taking on a more traditionally masculine role. Mm. Like it is not the kind of feminism where what is feminine is what is empowered it is the kind of feminism where i can do the thing i can do the things men do just as well as any man yeah Yeah. you often find that in the business world Mm -hmm. conversely or not conversely but in a more 21st century feminism kind of way i also often find her very prominent in the charts of people whose gender is non-binary. Mm. Okay. Like, uh, a friend of mine is non-binary, and when she started dating her current partner, um, she showed me his chart, and I could tell he was non-binary right away by uh, Pallas being conjunct something very important in his chart. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to give too much information because he's a very private person. So good luck right. figuring out which of my thousands of non-binary friends I'm talking about. <laughs> um, but uh, so I often see it there. There's other stuff with non-binary gender, which is a whole other episode, but this yeah. is what I often see with Pallas. Yeah. Where do you, how do you see Pallas show up in charts, Margaret? Well, I personally have a really nice grand earth trine with the sun, Jupiter and Pallas within like two degrees of each other, which is pretty cool. Um, I would consider myself to be in an, I'm a welder, you know. Oh, exactly. So I work in a traditionally masculine field. Um, I also have the Venus and Aries to, to bump that up. But, um, and I not only 
went in and and did that, but I feel comfortable there. Like I feel, mm-hmm. I feel fine with it. I don't feel an inherent sense of discomfort for being in the quote unquote, you know, mismatched field. I feel very comfortable and I feel successful in my craft as opposed to like setting out with a purpose to bust down these, these walls. You know, I, I kind of just walked in and, and, and did it. And I feel like, I feel like Athena had this really cool collected, like, I'm just going to go do these things because I'm who I am. You know, I was born with this shield and I was born with this knowledge and I'm just going to get it done without making a pomp and circumstance about getting it done. Like, I'm just going to do it. And yeah. I'm going to be, you know, I'm, I'm a war god, but I'm the war god who uses her noggin, <laughs> you know? Exactly. <laughs> One interesting thing. Um, so my mom has a palace in the fifth house, which is children. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I look exactly like my dad. Oh, really? <laughs> like there, there's some family resemblance to my mom. But it's almost like uh, I'm a carbon co- like I emerged from my dad's head fully formed. From your dad's head, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> wow, fascinating. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah. I just love. Side note: I love how astrology affects our physical appearance. I, <laughs> I love it. I think yeah. it's so interesting. Like yeah. astrological body types by Judith Hill is just one yeah. of the coolest books I've ever read. Like, well, Aries is, so is cool. tall and lanky. Yeah. 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 <laughs> My favorite thing is that there's a couple of people I know. Uh, so I have an Aries son with a sad rising, and there's a couple of people I know who have really similar faces to me. And one of them is an Aries moon with a sad rising, and the other one is an Aries rising with a uh, sad Sun. Sad sun. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. It's so interesting. I call it sorcerer face. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Yeah. One interesting thing about Palace is um, that the year, fascinating, like what synchronicities happen the year that these asteroids are discovered, like with Palace Athena, um, the year of her discovery, which was 1802. Um, so the Parthenon was, you know, the ancient, the, the building that where, where Athena was worshipped. Um, and supposedly over time, over the centuries, uh, this, uh, the Parthenon had been turned into some kind of, um, or some part of it had been used as an ammunition dump um, as Ooh. the Ottoman Empire started taking over more and more. Um, so already ammunition, think like, okay, there might be some other gods associated with ammunition, but that's still warlike. Um, yeah, and, absolutely. And there have been there have been a couple of massive explosions near the Parthenon that uh, destroyed some of the sculptures. There are actually, I mean, actually, a lot of the sculptures of the Parthenon, but that there were a few remaining uh, sculptures that survived. And apparently, the year that Palace Athena was discovered. Um, the the uh, the Earl of Elgin decided to have the sculptures, the remaining surviving sculptures inside the Parthenon, taken away and um, shipped to 
the UK so that so that they would be safe from because because they because they were concerned about that the Ottoman Empire being in Greece that they would not keep these sculptures in the Parthenon safe. Oh, okay. So just, yeah. So just the fact that oh, and the and the and the marble sculptures were shipped um, on a ship that was called Mentor. And so these layers of symbolism, like the fact that the, that it was an ammunition dump and that these marble sculptures were saved the same year that Pallas Athena the asteroid was discovered. <laughs> but, what did you say the uh, What did you say the ship was called? Mentor. Oh wow! <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's perfect. Yeah. yeah. Like you can't make this stuff up. You, you know, like, up. <laughs> you no. can't make it up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So you mentioning the ammunition dump reminded me of something I was thinking when Margaret was talking about uh, welding. Yeah. I sometimes see an association of palace with metalworking. Oh. I have her conjunct my north node, um, and I do a lot of sculpture and art. Um, and I also have the asteroid photographica conjunct my north node, which is you know a little tiny it's thing neither here nor there. Tiny but yeah, let's not let's not go crazy. But um, but yeah. yeah, metal metal working as you know a, a a direction, you know, a north node where you're supposed to be going, mm -hmm. um, and smithing. I would you know? disagree yeah. that it's where you're supposed to be going, but that's well, a whole other conversation. Yeah, that's, that's a whole, whole, other, whole thing. other episode. Yeah. <laughs> well, I just think it's interesting that it's there, and yeah, that I kind of got, I kind of got guided there. Like it wasn't really something where I woke up one morning and I was like, "Oh, I gotta do this." Like I just kind of mm -hmm. got like, like ping ponged in this direction, right? Which is that's more of what I meant. Um, Absolutely. Also, Hephaestus yeah. courted Athena. Uh, that, that was one of the whole scandals. And Hephaestus is, of course, the metals and the smithing and that kind of thing. Oh! Yeah. So, <laughs> so many scandals. <laughs> my understanding of the origin of Hephaestus, um, well, one of the origin stories for its birth yeah. was that uh, Hera, Juno, yeah. So pissed off that Zeus came up with a had a kid without her, mm -hmm. that she had a kid without him. And the result was Hephaestus, the smith god, who's uh lame in one leg. Yeah. And he, he was apparently like a huge brat and threw a lot of tantrums and <laughs> he ended up not being able to, to stand her own baby and like threw him off the mountain. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, child. so he became even more lame. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. But I think uh, that just about covers everything. Yeah, that's pretty thorough. <laughs> yeah. All right. Yeah. So if you want to find us on social media, we are Bird's Eye Astro on Twitter, Bird's Eye Astrology everywhere else. If you like this podcast and you want to help support the production of future podcasts, you can find us at patreon.com slash birdseyeastrology. And if you have any questions or suggestions for future shows, you can email us at birdseyeastrology at gmail.com. As for the three of us individually, all of us do readings and are taking clients. I am at Lip and Bone. On Twitter, I am at Readings by Arthur on Instagram. 
And um, my website is arthurlipbonowitz.com, A-R-T-H-U-R-L-I-P-P-B-O-N-E-W-I-T-S.com. I'm on Twitter at madmarg underscore. Um, it'll be in the description of this podcast as well. So if you can't understand what we're saying, you can see it written out. Um, but M-A-D-M-A-R-G underscore. Um, I'm also on Instagram at madmarg underscore for my personal skyroots astrology for my astrology one my personal one's a bit more active and i have facebook as well i'm at uh mythopoetic astrology so uh, so on instagram mythopoetic underscore astrology on facebook also mythopoetic astrology and i'm at mythopoetic astrology at gmail.com all right and that's a wrap Hope you guys enjoyed the episode and we'll see you next time.